I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are things in your part of the world right now? I know. I... <laughs> I'm laughing because this is the third, fourth, fourth, third, third, fourth. fourth. Like, uh, uh, John has asked me that question uh, repeatedly in the last few hours. And every time I sit here and I try to imagine, where am I today? How am I feeling? <laughs> and it used to be we would... We would try and actually look at the calendar and anticipate, okay, like what's going to be happening in our lives when this will actually be released. And I feel like we've kind of given up on that. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement. I mean, also to be fair, early on in the seasons with this podcast, sometimes you were in Colorado, sometimes you were in North Carolina, sometimes I was in Dallas, sometimes I was in upstate New York. I mean, to be fair, it it's not a completely irrelevant question. <laughs> well, that's true. And today you're still on the road. I am. I'm still in upstate New York. I'm working at the Fort Salem Theater once again. Uh, now I am working on a production of Little Shop of Horrors. And that goes up in March. And even though we are recording this in February, this will be hearing it in March. So... Yeah, so pretend like I'm timing. pretend like I'm conducting a show right now, and we're all great. <laughs> and you are absolutely killing it. I hope so. I mean, if nothing else, the plant is killing it, so we're good. I think that's uh, you know I've never done Little Shop of Horrors, but I imagine as long as the plant is amazing, it that, that's probably a big big chunk of the show and it it is and our producer went really out and rented this amazing set of plants from a professional designer in boston and they look just absolutely beautiful and uh no it's going to be a great addition to the show well i can't wait to see the pictures but in the meantime we have to talk about another show that i know you are very very excited to talk to us about what is that today we are talking about company has music and lyrics by stephen sondheim and a book by george firth company opened at the alvin theater on april 26 1970 and played 705 performances before closing on january 1st 1972 company was directed by hal prince with musical staging by michael bennett and music direction by Harold Hastings. The original Broadway cast included Dean Jones as Bobby, who was replaced a month into the run by Larry Kurt, Barbara Berry as Sarah, Charles Kimborough as Harry, Charles Braswell as Larry, Beth Howland as Amy, Elaine Stritch as Joanne, Susan Browning as April, Pamela Myers as Marta, and Donna McKechnie as Kathy. Company was nominated for 12 Tony Awards, a record in 1970, and won six, including Best Musical, Book, Score, Lyrics, in 1970 and only 1970, Score and Lyrics were split into two awards, Best Direction for Hal Prince, and Best Scenic Design. Interestingly, 
Larry Kurt, and not Dean Jones, was nominated for Best Actor after the Broadway League ruled him eligible despite being a replacement actor. Robert is a well-liked single man living in New York City whose friends are all married or engaged couples, Joanne and Larry, Peter and Susan, Harry and Sarah, David and Jenny, and Paul and Amy. It is Robert's 35th birthday, and the couples have gathered to throw him a surprise party. When Robert fails to blow out any candles on his birthday cake, the couples promise him that his birthday wish will still come true, though Bobby has wished for nothing, claiming that his friends are all that he needs. What follows is a series of disconnected vignettes in no apparent chronological order, each featuring Bobby visiting with one of the couples or alone on a date with one of his girlfriends. In the first vignette, Robert visits Sarah, a foodie supposedly now dieting, and her husband, Harry, an alcoholic supposedly now recovered. Sarah and Harry taunt each other on their vices, escalating toward karate-like fighting and thrashing that may or may not be playful. This prompts the caustic Joanne, the oldest, most cynical, and most often divorced of Robert's friends, to sarcastically comment to the audience that it's the little things that make a marriage work. Harry then explains, and the other married men concur, that people are both thankful and regretful about getting married, and that marriage changes both everything and nothing about the way they live. Robert is next with Peter and Susan on their apartment terrace. Peter is an Ivy League graduate and Susan a Southern Belle. The two seem to be a perfect couple, yet they surprise Robert with the news of their upcoming divorce. At the home of the uptight Jenny and chic David, Robert has brought along some marijuana that the three share. The couple turns to grill Robert on why he has not yet gotten married. Robert claims he is not against the notion, but the three women he is currently dating, Kathy, Marta, and April, appear and proceed, Andrew's sister's style, to chastise Robert for his reluctance to be committed. After Jenny asks for another joint, but is discouraged by David, David privately tells Robert that Jenny does not actually like marijuana, but partakes in it as a show of her love for him. All of Robert's male friends are deeply envious of his commitment-free status, and each has found someone that they find perfect for Robert. But Robert is waiting for someone who merges the best features of all his married female friends. Robert meets his three girlfriends in a small park on separate occasions, as Marta sings of the city, crowded, dirty, uncaring, yet somehow wonderful. Robert first gets to know April, a slow-witted airline flight attendant. Robert then spends time with Kathy. They had dated previously and both admit that they had each secretly considered marrying the other. They laugh at this coincidence before Robert suddenly considers the idea seriously. However, Kathy reveals that she is leaving for Cape Cod with a new fiancé. Finally, Robert meets with Marta. She loves New York and babbles on topics both highbrow and lowbrow. Robert is left stunned. The scene turns to the day of Amy and Paul's wedding. They have lived together for years, but are now just getting married. Amy has gotten an overwhelming case of cold feet, and as the upbeat Paul harmonizes rapturously, a panicking Amy confesses to the audience that she can't go through with it. Robert, the best man, and Paul, 
Watch as Amy complains and self-destructs over every petty thing she can possibly think of, and then finally explicitly calls off the wedding. Paul dejectedly storms out into the rain, and Robert tries to comfort Amy, but impulsively offers to marry Amy himself. His words jolt Amy back into reality, and she runs out after Paul, but first tells Bobby that he has to be ready to marry somebody, and not just somebody. The setting returns to the scene of his birthday party, where Robert is given his cake and tries to blow out the candles again. He wishes for something this time. The first act ends with the candles still not going out. Act two opens with the birthday party scene again, and Robert goes out to blow out his candles. This time, he gets about half of them out, and the couples have to help him with the rest. The couples share their views on Robert, both complimentary and unflattering, with each other as Robert reflects on being the fifth wheel. Robert brings April to his apartment after a date. She marvels at how homey his place is, and he casually leads her to the bed, sitting next to her on it and working on getting her into it. She earnestly tells him of an experience from her past involving the death of a butterfly. He counters with a bizarre remembrance of his own, obviously fabricated and designed to put her in the mood to succumb to his seduction. Meanwhile, the married women worry about Robert's single status and the unsuitable qualities they find in the women he dates. As Robert and April have sex, we hear Robert and April's thoughts, interspersed with music that expresses and mirrors their increasing excitement. The next morning, April rises early to report for duty aboard a flight to Barcelona. Robert tries to get her to stay, at first wholeheartedly, parrying her apologetic protestations that she cannot with playful begging and insistence. As April continues to reluctantly resist his entreaties and sleeplessness retakes him, Bobby loses conviction, agreeing that she should go. That change apparently gets to her, and she joyfully declares that she will stay after all. This takes Robert by surprise, and his astonished plaintive oh god is suffused with fear and regret robert and marta visit peter and susan and learn that peter flew to mexico to get the divorce but he phoned susan and she joined him there for a vacation though they are divorced they are still living together claiming they have too many responsibilities to actually leave each other's lives and that their relationship has actually been strengthened Susan takes Marta inside to make lunch. Joanne and Larry take Robert out to a nightclub where Larry dances and Joanne and Robert sit watching, getting thoroughly drunk. She blames Robert for always being an outsider, only watching life rather than living it, and also persists in berating Larry. She raises her glass in a mocking toast, passing judgment on various types of rich middle-aged women, wasting their lives away with mostly meaningless activities. Her harshest criticism is reserved for those like herself who just watch. And she concludes with the observation that all these ladies are bound together by a terror that comes with the knowledge that everybody dies. Larry returns from the dance floor, taking Joanne's drunken rant without complaint and explains to Robert that he still loves her dearly. When Larry leaves to pay the check, Joanne bluntly invites Robert to begin an affair with her, assuring him that she will take care of him. Robert's reply, 
but who will I take care of? Seems to surprise even him and strikes Joanne as a profound breakthrough on his part. Robert insists that he has been open to marriages and commitment, but questions, what do you get? Upon Larry's return, Robert asks again angrily, what do you get? Joanne declares with some satisfaction, I just did someone a big favor. She and Larry go home, leaving Robert lost in frustrating contemplation. The recurrent musical motif heard throughout the show begins yet again, as they all invite Bobby to drop by anytime. Rather than the cheery, indulgent tone that he has responded with in earlier scenes, Robert suddenly and desperately shouts, Stop! He sings, openly enumerating the many traps and dangers he perceives in marriage. Speaking their disagreements, his friends counter his ideas one by one, encouraging him to dare to try for love and commitment. Finally, Bobby's words change, expressing a desire, increasing an urgency for loving intimacy, even with all its problems and the wish to meet someone with whom to face the challenge of living. The opening party resets a final time. Robert's friends have waited for two hours with still no sign of him. At last, they all prepare to leave, expressing a new hopefulness about their absent friend's chances for loving fulfillment and wishing him a happy birthday wherever he may be. Robert then appears alone, smiles, and blows out all of his candles. I love this show, and I know you and I differ on it, and I will fully admit up front that part of my love for this show is I'm still, pardon the pun, on a bit of a honeymoon period, because, so, as I've talked about earlier in this season, I'm actually up in New York, uh, working at the Fort Salem Theater. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for listening. And I'm working on a production of Little Shop. So in between auditions and the first week of rehearsals, I actually, for the first time in really ever, got to sneak down to the city for a couple of days. And one of the things I was able to see was the current revival that is running on Broadway of Company with Katrina Lenk as a gender-bent Bobby, as well as Patti Lapone, um, several other people. And I'm going to get into it a little bit, but it kind of was one of those shows that made me fall in love with this material all over again. I really honestly believe that this show is deceptive. Because in the Sondheim catalog, I don't want to call it a B-tier show because that's not fair or indicative of its quality. But when you compare it to something like Sweeney Todd or Into the Woods or Sunday in the Park with George, it's not as well known. But I would argue that of all the shows that Sondheim has written about the concept of personal struggle and a person trying to find their way in life, find, trying to find their place in life, it's actually one of his most successful. So many people love to dismiss this show as artsy. And 
I mean, reviews echo this. Like one, I was reading one of the more brutal out-of-town reviews when this show originally set up in Boston for its out-of-town tryout. And it just slammed it because it was it wasn't exciting. It was artsy. It was highbrow. It was about people and not events or things or places. Um, but it is exceptional in defining not only Bobby as a person, but manages to flesh out every character in this show to the point where you care about every single person in this show. Unless you're a cynical bastard like me. <laughs> and this is my hang up with this show. I, so I don't think this is a bad show. And I'm not trying to yuck anyone's yum. This is a show I don't particularly enjoy. And it's so bizarre for me because with one exception, I genuinely love every single song in this show as a song. I think it, it is some of Sondheim's best music. It is all perfect for what it is supposed to be doing in the story. It is all, uh, of course, brilliantly constructed. It is clever. It is all the things that we want out of Sondheim music. But when it's put together in the structure of a show that functionally kind of lacks any structure because it's all sort of abstractly presented, except the character of Bobby as the sort of framing device that everything is centered on. I just don't care about Bobby. And I, I, I don't think that's anyone's fault. I think that is purely a me thing. Uh, I think Bobby as a character, and particularly as, as we were going through this breakdown, like his journey makes sense. And I understand why that's a character that so many people can relate to, see themselves in and understand and empathize with. I just don't. And I, I can't change who I am. I can't change what the show is. And it's just, it, it's not the Sondheim show for me. But it is a really, really good show. Nevertheless, I can, I can recognize and acknowledge that. And there are so many great songs, except for Barcelona, which sucks. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you, what is the one song? And I won't lie. Barcelona. Yeah. Barcelona is, I was going to say. Garbage. Well, Bar I was going to say, Barcelona is the but... by the sea of company. It is. It really, I mean, all it does is it gets us out of Bobby's bedroom. That's what it does. It is this song where, oh, it, and it's a bit of a mis, it, it's a bit of a misplaced song for me because we start to see the growth. We see the growth of, of Bobby all the way through act one. Barcelona actually happens about halfway through act two. And so we see this growth, we see this, you know, this germ of an idea of Bobby starting to latch on to the capital U-T universal truth that he is, in fact, ready to live and love and whatever that, you know, middle-aged white women love to put on their wall. Um, but it's a big step back because all of a sudden it's like Bobby is trying to convince this airline attendant to stay in bed with him like it just it seems out of character and it's literally just don't go i have to no don't go no i really have to no please don't go okay oh shit 
I mean, that's it. That's the song. I have managed in four sentences to give you all the information in Barcelona. It's, I don't blame Sondheim for this, okay? I it, It's just literally- I, a, I'll blame him. Like, it's just a he song- He wrote it. That, okay, he did write it, but it's just like, you had to get out of that scene. You had to get out of that scene with a song. I get it. That's fine. Um, You're not wrong- and I do feel like this sh- this show is very mired in the beginning unlikability of Bobby. And for the longest time, it, it's interesting because I'm going to get into it a little bit when I'm talking about the revival that that you know is currently playing on Broadway. But a lot of the scholarship, and yes, there is Sondheim scholarship out there, and I encourage all of you to read it because it's fascinating. Love to attribute a lot of Bobby's unlikability to the quote-unquote male gaze and this idea that he must be this masculine man, and which is completely and totally undone by the, the revival, which we'll get into into a minute, I promise. Um, But I guess in this case, it's not necessarily a subversion, but it's a deviation of the hero's journey for me. Bobby is going undergoing this purely mental journey of discovering himself. And in this case, it is in regards to relationships, to life, to love, whatever, so on and so forth. But it is that kind of classic journey of discovery that our hero has to undertake. I will fully admit this is a flawed show that I love that is more than, to me, is more than the sum of its parts. That being said, it is very much an all or nothing musical. So much of this show is intertwined. The idea of the story and the music and the orchestration and the styling are so incredibly intertwined. And in the past, we have talked about um, John Doyle as a director and how it, specifically with Sondheim it seems where he has done he's actually done a couple of Sondheim productions at this point he did an out-of-town revival of Company he did a revival of Sweeney Todd um, and his big gimmick because if you know Gypsy has taught us anything is you always got to have a gimmick is the concept of the cast playing the instruments, which from a purely spectacle standpoint, okay, it's something different. But the John Doyle production specifically of Company completely and utterly misses the point and ruins the concept of Company to the point where, and I'm actually going to read what I wrote in my rundown because it finally succinctly puts what I feel about the John Doyle production. I wrote in our rundown, the John Doyle production also ruined this show for me because it ripped the heart out of the show, threw it down on the stage, stomped on it, and then peed on the desiccated remains. And it managed to do that so incredibly efficiently. It's horrible because it what it did was it completely destroyed the original Jonathan Tunic orchestrations and it gave it this very artsy triangle based percussion I hate this term but I'm going to use it because it fits 
artsy fartsy feeling to this show and this show is defined by the fact that it's a rock musical it's got the bass it's got the drums it's got the guitar it has the winds it has the strings it is very mired in its sound and when you separate this show from its sound it completely ruins the show yeah so the orchestrations of this show as you mentioned jonathan tunic someone we're a big fan of uh in the original production i think we're we're really really good they are very distinctly of that sort of 1970s era and sound but they also feel very very appropriate to the material and they are a vital part of the storytelling and that Jonathan Doyle production, which anyone can find because there it was filmed and is out in the world. Uh, while I don't inherently hate the idea of the cast members playing the instruments, I have some complicated issues with that idea, but I don't want to just dismiss it out of hand. The reorchestration of the show that resulted in this particular production was absolutely terrible. And they made some choices that were uh just very very wrong and very off-putting it it just i i won't mince words it destroys the production for me it's lousy it's horrible i will fully admit i'm carrying baggage because the last time i've ever been on stage which for those of you out there who are listening who know me know i don't enjoy being on stage but the last time anyone ever actually got to see me act was as a as Larry in a production of Company that even before the John Doyle orchestrations were available for rental, the director decided he was going to, I'm just going to come out and say it, directly rip off every aspect of the Doyle production to the point where it was like even the set looked the same, but I digress. I'm not carrying any baggage from that. I'm totally fine. It's great. And yeah, wonderful. Um, it just doesn't work at all. Not in the least, not in the little bit. Company, like so many other shows out there, has a very specific sound, a very specific concept. And when you try and deviate that from, excuse me, when you try and deviate from that for the sake of cleverness, it will not be successful. And let's be honest, they cut the most musically clever part of the show, which is Jonathan Tunick's little Mahler quotation in the orchestrations in Here's to the Ladies Who Lunch uh, and one for Mahler. That little Mahler quote in there. That's the cleverest part of the show as far as I'm concerned. I won't disagree with you. I mean, there are other things that are missing. Like if you listen to the original Broadway cast and you're listening to another hundred people, um, this is also something that was replicated in the uh, 2018 London and the current uh, Broadway revival is he manages to bury the tune from the opening number in the orchestration for another, another hundred people. When, when Marta um, gets to, in the original Broadway, when Marta gets to the bridge, if you listen very carefully in the background, you can hear which is, and we talked about it a little bit in the rundown, that is the kind of motif that 
encapsulates the the couples they sing it at the beginning of the show they sing it at the end of act one they sing it at the beginning of act two they sing it in the middle of act two they sing it at the end of the show this concept of bobby 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 baby bobby booby bobby 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 and so on and so forth and so forth and that becomes like the identifiable motif of these couples that surround bobby's life yeah that's missing from the doyle version too much to my dismay because it's so clever so incredibly clever so john (laughs) yes as is the case with many musicals there are songs that get cut there are and there are from this show as well how do you feel about marry me a little i hmm i am conflicted so marry me a little is the song that ends act one where bobby finally realizes that he is he is needed to take a step. He doesn't necessarily know what that step is, but he is finally admitting for the first time in his life that he has to take a step. Now, fun trivia, that song did not originally end act one. Originally, Sondheim wrote a song that ended act one called multitude of amy's so as we've talked about amy is one of the characters in the show she's the one who's about to marry paul gets cold feet threatens to not marry paul but ends up going through with it after bobby's basically jokingly but it turns out not really jokingly offers his hand in marriage to amy says well marry me and then she responds no you have to be ready to marry somebody not somebody and so then bobby sings this song multitude of amy's that basically talks about the qualities he's looking for in a soulmate a little bit of amy a little bit of joanne a little bit of april a little bit of marta and so on and basically goes down this list of all the women in his life and how it inter and how it interacts with his goals. Ultimately, I think marry me a little is a little bit more (laughs) to pardon the pun, a little bit more successful because ultimately this show is not about the couples. The show is ultimately about Bobby finally accepting his journey, his role in life and his, his desire to, how do I want to put this? His desire to find something that gives it meaning in his world. Multitude of Amy's doesn't do that. Whereas marry me a little is at least that first step it's that that exaltation of i need something in my life and maybe this is it well and actually i mean in the original cast recording neither of those songs exists well yeah i mean okay if you're gonna get technical i mean so i i'm curious do you know when marry me a little became a part of the show that you would now do if you were to produce company? Because it certainly was not a part of that original production. I want, so there have been several revisions of this production. The last one occurred in 2013. And actually, if you go to uh, rent the materials to produce this, it's actually a 2013 revision of this show that you're allowed to produce 
which actually is interesting because it gives you then the option of renting the orchestrations from the John Doyle abomination, I mean, revival, or uh, the original orchestrations from the 1970s. So it turns out Marry Me a Little was actually written in an early version of the show, but was not actually codified in the production permanently until the 1995 revision. Um, so it wasn't actually until several decades, not several is not the right word. It was not until a couple of decades after the show was written that Marry Me a Little was actually set to close the first act. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> but ultimately, you think it's a good addition? Oh, absolutely. And there are other songs from this show that, so for example, TikTok, which was actually the music over, for lack of a better term, Bobby's sex scene in Act Two, um, that all the wives sang, um, also has been in and out. It is currently out it is not part of any production, um, is also not great. <laughs> um, it has been used sometimes. Uh, there was actually a fairly famous 2011 staging with the New York Philharmonic, um, which is actually brilliant, with Paul Jumanji conducting the New York Philharmonic. And, I mean, you want to talk about casts. It was just absolutely brilliant. It, Neil Patrick I mean, Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. Um, David Martha Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce. Martha Plimpton. Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert. Um, Craig Bierko. Uh, John Cryer. Aaron Lazar. I mean, this was Christina Hendricks was April. I mean, this was just kind of like an all-star production. And if you have the ability to find it, and it, I want to say it's on YouTube, but if you if you have the ability to find the New York Philharmonic concert version from 2011, I highly, highly recommend it because it is a great representation of this show. Um, but just the cast is absolutely brilliant, which gets us to 2022, <laughs> really technically 2021, but today is 2022 and so we're going to talk about 2022 um and the most current revival that is working on broadway right now now it's unique and it well let me rephrase that it's unique in the sense that it finally codifies what so many theater groups have been doing for so long under the radar in the fact that it changes the gender of several of the characters so instead of Bobby, you have Bobby, i.e., and in the current Broadway revival is played by Katrina Lenk. It changes the three girlfriends to three boyfriends. So instead of April, Marta, and Kathy, you have Andy, PJ, and Theo. In addition, it changes the Paul and Amy relationship to a gay relationship between Paul and Jamie. And 
I've got to tell you, and again, I kind of alluded to this. I'm still in the, pardon the pun, honeymoon period of seeing this. But this revival really just reignited my love for this show and this material. And it really made me start to think. And I talked a little bit earlier about how one of the criticisms of this show was Bobby suffering from this concept of the male gaze, that he saw women as the prize, that a relationship was a a goal, it was a life challenge, it was a life marker, um, but that he was almost under this obligation to find someone, fall in love with someone, and marry someone because that's what you do. It struck me as what when I was watching this review with again Katrina Lank as Bobby, who was absolutely brilliant, that the story really was never about this gendered role. Um, it was more about this concept of the human desire to find their niche, the human desire to find a reason for existing. And in Bobby's case, whether it's Bobby with a Y or Bobby with an IE, this desire to be desired, this desire for companionship, this desire for a companion in life. And that's ultimately what this story becomes for me, is not so much the concept of man must find woman and fall in love with woman and marry woman. But this story is really about someone deciding what they want in life. And in this case with Bobby, it's a relationship, it's love, it's commitment, it's, it is companionship in finding their way to accepting the fact that not only are they ready for it, but that they're worthy of it. And there's actually a really, really brilliant quote from Stephen Sondheim, actually right before he passed away, where he said, you can do it in different ways from generation to generation. What keeps theater alive is the chance to always do it differently with not only fresh casts, but fresh viewpoints. It's not, a mat- it's not just a matter of changing pronouns, but attitudes. So it kind of echoes this concept of, it's not about Bobby being a boy looking for the perfect girl or Bobby, i.e. being a girl looking for the perfect boy. It's about the struggle with all of us to find what we want in life, to be willing to acknowledge and chase after what we want in life. And ultimately the success of company is because for Honestly, the first time in a while, and I'm not saying that it's an exclusive thing, Broadway has has portrayed stories similar to this in the past, but it humanizes it. It makes it real. It makes, again, like we've talked about in previous episodes, it makes me care. It makes me want Bobby to find what they're looking for. I have, I have nothing else to add about the show. <laughs> but I, 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 I know you're going to make the recommendation for what recording they should listen to. But I have some alternative materials people may want to check out. Uh, there is a fascinating documentary that was made while they recorded the cast album of the original production of Company. 
absolutely brilliant. If you ever want to get as close as you're going to get into the mind of Stephen Sondheim and his creation process, you have to watch this documentary. It is genuinely fascinating. It's uh, published now by the Criterion Company and is readily available in places that you may have to pay to see it. But if you like this music and you like Sondheim, it is definitely worth your time if you haven't seen it before. And then once you've watched that, you need to go and watch the documentary now parody of it called Co-op. The uh, filming of the cast <laughs> album of the fake musical co-op that uh, closes the night after it opens and they're all recording this cast album as they're finding out that their show is closed. Uh, John Mulaney plays a character that's sort of spoofing Stephen Sondheim and it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So for those of you who aren't familiar, getting before we get into the parody, if we get into the parody at all, which we probably won't because, well, we're not talking about the parody. So the cast album for Company was actually recorded in a 24-hour period. This was not horribly unusual. It was not necessarily what every show did. But basically, their first dark night after officially opening the show, the entire cast and the orchestra, plus other invited guests, were all packed into a recording studio, and they recorded the cast album for Company in one night a single night and it basically is a half dozen cameras capturing that entire night from the moment they stepped in to the next morning when elaine stretch for probably what is what the fifth or sixth time in the documentary is recording ladies who lunch it actually got to the point where they recorded the orchestra separate sent the orchestra home and she ended up singing to a track of the orchestra playing because it ended up just being that tumultuous but it's an absolutely brilliant documentary not only about company and really kind of dives in because he really dives into so much about the makeup of company and how it's supposed to be done and all of that but kind of the process of Stephen Sondheim as a musician as a composer as a leader I guess for lack of a better term because he isn't directing per se but definitely a this is how I want my music to be done and by the way I'm Stephen fucking Sondheim would you like to recommend a recording as well for the more casual listener? Well, I suppose. I mean, you can't go wrong with the original 1970 Broadway. Now, I will preface this by saying that if you listen to the 1970 Broadway original cast, you will not hear Larry Kurt. You will hear Dean Jones because Larry Kurt was not made part of the cast until about a month into production when Dean Jones left because his marriage had basically fallen apart and it was, it was a whole mess and you, you, you got a feel for the guy. So Broadway is always going to be my first. Um, if you can find a recording and I know they exist out there of again, the 2011 New York Philharmonic concert with Paul Jumanji conducting the New York Phil and Neil Patrick Harris singing the role of Bobby. I'm sorry, did you just call him Paul Jumanji? <laughs> Gemignani. Gemign I always have problems with his name. I don't... <laughs> I, I like to think that I am not a stupid person. John, but you are for not some a stupid reason, person. names 
turn me into a babbling idiot. We've had this conversation a half dozen times because we've talked about Paul Gemignani before, but for some reason, every so often it's Paul Jamanji or Orpheus and what will I say? You're a DJ. You're a Yeah, It was Orpheus and you're It's like, no, it's Eurydice. They like literally say that in the first two minutes of the song, Orpheus and Eurydice. But anyway, this is all going to get cut. So fuck that. Um, so the New York Phil concert, I would also recommend the 2018 West End Revival, which is the first to gender swap the role of Bobby Y to Bobby IE with Rosalie Craig singing the principal role of Bobby. Um, it also features Patti Lapone as Joanne. That show, its orchestration and its revisions is what eventually transferred to the current Broadway revival with Katrina Link, as well as once again, Patti Lapone as Joanne. So if you're going to listen to three, the 1970 Broadway, the 2011 New York Phil, and the 2018 West End. Sting from Judge John Hodgman. Surprise post-credits sequence. <laughs> John! I know what's coming. Okay, bring it on. John, you recently saw the revival of Company that, that features... Uh, Patty Lapone. I did. I, I, you know what? I, I, I vaguely remember that. Yes, I, I did. It's funny you bring that up. Um. Okay. Would you like to tell me how you felt about Patty Lapone's performance? Well, it's no secret on this podcast that I am not a fan of Patty Lapone. I, I, I feel like I've been pretty straightforward with that. Well, my dear listeners, my friends out there, my special people listening to this podcast, I have tumultuous news. My opinion may, in fact, be changing. So, originally, I, I, I will fully admit, there were certain shows when I was in New York, I was like, I must see this show. Company was actually not on that list. It was one of those that I went back and forth and I was like, it's company. I love company. I've got baggage with company. Do I just need to see a re another rehashing of company? And so I ended up doing that. And part of my decision process was, well, I have made it clear my dislike of Patty Lapone. Maybe I should see her in person once to either cement or kind of speak against my feelings on Patty Lapone. Well, I didn't this hate is her. so hard for you. I didn't hate her. It was actually a really good casting for her. The role of Joanne is a little acidic. She's a little bit world weary, but also written to know everything. She is the consummate know-it-all. But my preconceived notions of Patti Lapone as this big, brash, balls-to-the-wall performer was wrong. She played it with nuance. She played it with subtlety. And honestly, I really, really enjoyed her performance. I don't know if this is enough to say... I love Patti Lapone now and get a shirt that, you know, Patti Lapone fan club. That's, that's probably not going to happen now because there is still a lot out there that I am not a fan of. 
But her ladies at lunch was for me on par with Elaine Stritches. And I know when we talked about best Sondheim song ever, we talked about, you know, one of the reasons Ladies Who Lunch was eliminated because in my mind, Elaine Stritch was the consummate performer of that song. No one else could do it like her. And that's how it was. Patty, she kind of killed it. It was, it was subtle. It was nuanced. It was beautiful. And I won't lie because I TKTS this show, I was in like the fourth row and right around the one for Mahler line, she looked out and I know this isn't actually true, but it felt like it. We locked eyes for a minute and I'm like, Oh my God, Patty Lapone is looking at me when she says the the one for Mahler line. This is this is really 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 cool. Like, I okay, I can deal with this. This is fantastic. So, yes, John, yes, dear listeners, I do believe I may be softening on the Patty Lapone question. It's not so much how do you solve a problem like Patty, but. What roles do I want to see Patty in going forward? So tune in next week for our discussion on war paint. (laughs) No, we are not talking about war paint next week. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.